You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're here in our local coffee shop in Palo Alto, California, waiting for the simple pleasures of coffee. Oh, here he comes. Here's your coffee, black. Thanks. Here's your double decaffeinated, full-caf, three-pump, no-foam macchiato. You didn't say sprinkles. They're under the lemon wedge. Okay, thanks. Mmm, nothing like a cup of joe. Anyway, sitting here with a time-honored tradition of drinking coffee and contemplating the big questions of the universe. All right, this is where you can really espresso yourself. No, but Seth, did you know that the Enlightenment actually got a caffeine kickstart because of the introduction of coffee houses in London? I didn't know that, Molly. Is it true? Yeah, that's actually true. They replaced some ale houses, so people began the day not with alcohol, but with coffee, or rather caffeine. Got the brains going. So this is the place to come and give some thought to why we're here. And I'm not talking about for the coffee, but why the universe exists. I mean, as I look around here, Molly, I see 40 or 50 pounds of collective brain tissue hunched over their drinks, flailing away at their computers. But they're probably not blogging about why we exist or why there's matter. What is matter? Why is it different from light? Yeah, or texting their theories about what caused the Big Bang. Excuse me, can you pass the sugar? Oh, yeah, sure, here. Thanks. Or why is there anything at all? I mean, why isn't the universe just one eternal void? I can't expect anyone here to help me find the answers to those questions. What was that music? Sorry, that's my cell. Hi, Leonard Susskind here, professor of theoretical physics at Stanford University. No, no, we expected the universe would be slowing down with time, but it's actually accelerating. Okay, bye. Get those all day long. Did I just hear you say that you're Leonard Susskind, professor of theoretical physics at Stanford? Yes. Well, I'm Seth Chostak, and I host a science radio show called Big Picture Science. And I'm Molly Bentley. Well, Leonard, if I may ask you, do you ever wonder why we're here? All the time. The obvious question is, when it comes to the nature of the universe, are all the answers in the Big Bang, was our fate in the flash? (laughs) Well, I suppose it was. Um the start of the universe, or at least what we perceive as the start of the universe, certainly contained the structures that later evolved into galaxies, the light, the radiation, all the matter and entropy and heat and so forth that eventually evolved into us. Sounds like time began with the Big Bang. It's, of course, very difficult for us to think of an existence without time, but But how do you define time? What is time for you, Leonard? Well, for me as a physicist, time is a mathematical variable 
which as the world evolves, time just goes on and on. It's T. It's the quantity T in my equations. But what is it for me? It's really about the same thing that it is for you. It's what uh, measures things happening one after another. It's what measures clocks proceeding from one value of time to another value of time. It really means pretty much the same thing to me as it means to you with the added fact that I use time mathematically. I use it mathematically to describe how things change. Without time, nothing would change. But the people here in this cafe use time practically. We use it in our everyday lives. And can you ask the question what their existence would be like, what my existence would be like, all our existence would be like without time? (laughs) I can't. I can't imagine a world without time. There are certain things I simply can't imagine, and I can't imagine them well enough to give answers uh, to the deep questions about them. What would the world be like without time? Well, we'd all be standing here absolutely frozen. My brain wouldn't work. One thought would stick in my mind forever and ever and ever and ever. And uh, it would be an extremely dull world. So there are some things, some questions, they sound like good questions, but you can't even imagine an answer to them. First of all, you don't know the answer to them, but even worse, you can't imagine what an answer would be like. Well, Seth actually talked to theoretical physicist Sean Carroll about this time question as well. By the way, what are you drinking? Oh, this? Well, it's just a double decaffeinated, full-calf, three-pump, no-foam macchiato. Oh, boy, I should try that. Sean. People speak glibly about space-time, uh, time is the fourth dimension. I mean, you hear it from people who've you know, never even had a single course in physics. And so it sounds like time and space are somehow equivalent, and yet we intuitively feel they're not. No, that's exactly right. Time and space are very similar to each other. Einstein really nailed this. He said exactly how it works. But even before Einstein, you still needed to say where you're going to meet somebody and when you're going to meet somebody. Time and space both helped you locate things in the universe. But there's a huge difference, and I think that the single most important difference is that time has a direction. Space does not. If you're in a spacesuit far away from the Earth or anything like that, up, down, left, right, forward, backward, there'd be no difference between them. Whereas when it comes to time, there's an obvious difference between yesterday and tomorrow. There's nowhere in the universe you can go to escape the fact that the past is different from the future. So there's an arrow of time pointing from the past to the future. There's no arrow of space, and we'd like to understand why. Okay, but this sounds somewhat fundamental. I mean, it's like having four identical twins, except one twin isn't very identical. It's got blonde hair, and all the others are brunettes. And, and yet we accept this as the natural state of things. Nobody expects time to go backwards. I guess we're just wired in to deal with the, uh, the reality that we encounter. I mean, we're just critters in, in this uh, four-dimensional space. But, I mean, have people ever thought about this before, the idea that time might be somehow, I mean, that, that it's peculiar that it's asymmetric? Well, that's right. I mean, first we have to convince people that there is a puzzle here to be solved, and then we can think about the puzzle. But the puzzle became clear in the 19th century because the deep-down laws of physics, whether you're Isaac Newton or Albert Einstein or Erwin Schrodinger or Ed Witten doing superstring theory, all of our attempts to make fundamental laws of physics treat the past and the future the same. They're symmetric with respect to time. They don't have an arrow of time in them. So it was Boltzmann and Maxwell and their buddies in the late 19th century that figured out you can have 
times arrow in the macroscopic world, even though it's not there in the microscopic world. This is the discipline of statistical mechanics. When you have many, many particles, then you can see phenomena that are irreversible, that only work in one direction of time. The question is, why is our universe arranged in such a way so that all of these different processes are irreversible in the same direction everywhere? And ultimately, it's going to be because of conditions near the Big Bang. Conditions near the Big Bang. So is the Big Bang defined the direction of time, that it could only go forward, that it had some sort of ratchet? It, it, it could go forward, but not backward. That's exactly right. The universe is like a wind-up toy that, for whatever reason, was all wound up right at the Big Bang 13.7 billion years ago. It's been puttering along ever since. It's going to wind down in another Google years from now, another 10 to the 100 years. So we have a finite time in which there is a direction to time, an arrow of time. It's all because the early universe was a very, very special place, and, and we're not sure why. But do you mean to imply by that that, that conceivably there could have been a period in the history of existence, whatever those words mean, actually, where time was always going the other way, and, and maybe my, my room would clean itself spontaneously rather than getting messier. Well, yes, I mean exactly that. More to the point, it would be more natural for there not to be an arrow of time. If you think about just the air in a room, it's all spread out. It's, it's what we call a high entropy state. It's as disorderly as it can possibly be. And as far as just the air is concerned, there's no arrow of time. There's no difference between the air at one moment, the air at another moment. If you, if you made a movie, you could run it backwards, it would look the same. The question is, the universe doesn't look like that. The universe has all these processes going on in one direction. You can take an egg, turn it into an omelet. You cannot take an omelet, turn it into an egg. And so why don't we live in equilibrium? Why aren't we just static? Why are things changing at all? And again, it's because we started in such a special state. That's the challenge to understand. Now, does that imply that that special state in which we started, the Big Bang, that's just mm -hmm. a euphemism for the Big Bang then, uh, that uh, that was a singular event? Was that the only time it happened? Or, or could there have been lots of Big Bangs, some of them starting universes that went the other way or being the endpoint of a universe that went the other way? Yeah, exactly. In fact, I think that the reason, the best explanation we have for why there's such a pronounced arrow of time within our observable universe is that our observable universe is not all there is. It's just one of many, many, many universes, all of which start very, very small and concentrated and then expand and relax and have their arrow of time that way. So in order to make, I mean, there's a lot of steps along the way to make sense of this kind of phenomenon, but one of the implications would be that there are other universes where time's arrow points in the other direction. It's not weird to the people living in that universe, they still call the past the direction in which the universe is more orderly, the direction of lower entropy. So no one is surprised because they see omelets turning into eggs or anything like that. You always remember the direction of time where there were eggs. You predict the future direction where there are omelets. I have to follow up on this because the idea of my omelet as I'm sitting there at breakfast turning back into an egg is not only dismaying, but it interferes with my breakfast. So <laughs> I, I, you, uh, many people speak of multi-universes, multiple universes. Uh, you know, people say I'm in a different universe and so forth and so on. It's become part of the everyday talk, actually. And yet uh, I don't know how many realize that one of the motivations for thinking there are multiple universes is that our universe is kind of kindly for life. It allows life to exist. In a universe where time went the other way, could you even have life? Yes, because it would go the other way with respect to us. It would be completely normal to them. There is no intrinsic directionality to time. You know, there, we happen to pick the direction which we call the future. That's the direction which entropy increases. If in some other universe, 
when you compare it to ours, entropy increases in the other direction of time. They don't notice anything weird. They think everything is fine, and they say that we have a backwards-directed arrow of time. Maybe we should explain the term entropy, because we've been bandying it about here. Sometimes I think of entropy as explaining why the Roman Empire seems a little less organized now than it was in, in Caesar's time. Uh, may, maybe you could explain it from the standpoint of a scientist. Sure. I mean, basically, entropy is disorderliness. If you imagine putting a nice, neatly uh, stacked pile of papers on your desk, it would naturally happen over the course of events that the papers would scatter across your desk. If you scattered papers across your desk, it would never naturally happen that the papers would arrange themselves in a nice, neat pile. And basically, that's because there are more ways for the papers to be scattered than for the papers to be organized. So entropy, according to Ludwig Boltzmann in the 1870s, is basically the number of ways you can change the atoms or the constituents of something without changing its overall appearance. So this was part of the great debate that was going on in the 19th century because most physicists didn't believe in atoms. And Boltzmann said, well, if you believe in atoms, I can explain what entropy is. It's just that there's more ways to be disorderly than to be orderly. So entropy tends to increase. Entropy is the disorderliness. There's more ways to be high entropy than to be low entropy. That's why entropy goes up. Is there any way to prove this hypothesis that there could be other universes in which time's arrow is pointing the other way? There might be, or there might not be. We actually don't know. The theory is not developed far enough to make a specific prediction. It could be that universes bump into each other or affect each other in certain ways. But more likely than that, we're going to understand the fundamental laws of physics better directly through observations, experiments here in the world. And then we'll figure out whether or not those fundamental laws of physics predict the existence of other universes. I think a lot of people object to the idea of other universes because they say they can't be observed, they can't be tested, they can't be falsified. But what you have to understand is that the multiverse is not a theory. We don't start with the multiverse. We start with some laws of physics. The multiverse is a prediction. If the laws of physics work in a certain way, then there will be other parts of the universe where things are very different. The laws of physics locally will be different, time's arrow will point in a different direction, etc. We don't know the laws of physics well enough right now to judge whether or not that's true, so we have to do things like look at the microwave background, build the Large Hadron Collider at CERN. We need to understand the fundamental architecture of reality better before we can take these things seriously. Finally, Sean, I was sitting next to a guy in an airplane just a couple of days ago, and he was asking what I did for a living. I tried to explain it. And he was somewhat skeptical, not about the idea that there might be extraterrestrials or anything like that, but that basic research, just knowing something for the, really just to know it, uh, was generally speaking bad for society. He thought that all this science was really a bad idea. Uh, here you're asking questions about the absolutely most fundamental aspects of, of, of our cosmos. How do, how do you justify that at cocktail parties? Well, my answer is that when we're six years old, everyone is a theoretical cosmologist. Everyone wants to know how the world works, why the sky is blue, are there other planets, is there life on other planets, all of these questions. And we gradually get it beaten out of us by life, by school, by who are we going to go to the prom with, how are we going to pay for our car, by all of these much more tangible worries. So it's not a matter of convincing people that these questions are interesting. It's a matter of reminding people that these questions are interesting. We don't spend some huge fraction of our gross domestic product doing this. It's actually relatively cheap compared to other fields of endeavor. But these are the fundamental questions that we all want to know the answer to. And the interesting thing is that we're getting there. We're making progress. We can see a day when we actually understand what happened at the Big Bang. John Carroll, thank you very much for talking to me. I noticed that the end of this interview is somewhat later than the beginning. <laughs> That's how it works. It's interesting enough, yes. 
Sean Carroll is a theoretical physicist at the California Institute of Technology, and we're sitting in this cafe talking about the big questions with yet another theoretical physicist, Leonard Susskind. Well, Leonard, I, I think that the entropy of my coffee here is actually increasing because it seems to be getting colder and the foam is breaking up. And frankly, I don't feel like I'm looking any better either. <laughs> well, uh, you're almost right, Seth. The entropy of your coffee is really decreasing because it's getting colder. But what's happening is the entropy of your coffee and the room and the evaporation products of the coffee and all the air molecules, that is increasing as the coffee comes to equilibrium with the room. <laughs> hey, you know, Leonard, Sean Carroll said that if you made a movie of the air molecules in a closed room, you, know, you could run that movie forwards, backwards. It would look the same. The molecules are moving around, bouncing around. Nothing changes. It doesn't matter which way time goes. Um, does that mean that there's no time in a room like that? No, it doesn't. What, what Sean was, of course, referring to is if you close the room up and you leave it long enough until it comes to what a physicist would call thermal equilibrium, that the molecules would just bang around and everything would seem to stay the same forever and ever and ever. But it's not really true. Fluctuations happen. Here and there, a few extra molecules will accumulate. Then those molecules will dissipate. Perhaps if you wait long enough, whole bunches of molecules will accumulate in the corner of the room. Wait a little bit longer, they'll escape from the corner of the room. So things are constantly going on. Um, on the other hand, it sort of looks like nothing is happening because you can't see the molecules. They're too small. So you miss most of the action. But there's plenty going on. A little bit like watching the baristas behind the counter there. It doesn't look like much is happening, but occasionally there's this big flurry of activity. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The, uh, the molecules are uh, also um, looking a little bit lazy, but in fact they're not. They're moving, zipping around, and plenty of action is going on. So another mind-bending question, is there time outside the universe? Does time exist outside our universe? Well, you're asking me another one of these questions, which uh, not only do I not know the answer to, but I can't imagine an answer. I don't even really know what it means to be outside the universe. We'll return to our Cosmic Cafe conversation with Seth and Leonard in a moment. Mm. Oh, that's hot. It's big picture science. Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Back to our conversation about why we're here in this cafe where Seth and I ran into theoretical physicist Leonard Susskind. Cafes are where you have such conversations, or at least they used to be before our laptops were invented. So we continue with light, the universe, and everything. 
And we'll get to light soon, I suspect. But first, what really matters, right, Seth? Well, sitting here in this cafe, Leonard, I mean, if you look at this coffee of mine in detail, you would see molecules of coffee beans. And if you looked into the molecules, you would find atoms. And if you look in the atoms, you'd find particles like protons and neutrons. If you took those apart, you might find quarks. And, but the real question is, why is there any matter? I mean, why does this stuff exist, the stuff you can hold in your hand, or for that matter, your hand? Right, okay, that's an extremely interesting question. Um, in the very, very early universe, we believe the universe was extremely hot, and when it was hot, it was filled with radiation. That's what it means to be hot, to be filled with lots of radiation, high-energy photons banging around and uh, continuously interacting with each other. Every time two photons collided with each other, they had some probability to make protons and antiprotons, electrons and positrons, the works. Every time they collide, just like in an accelerator, they can make all sorts of particles. And then those particles would collide. Some of them would annihilate, meaning to say particles and antiparticles would come together, make more radiation. And in the very, very hot universe, we think there was a kind of equilibrium in which there were as many particles as antiparticles, as many photons as there were particles, and all of this was banging around like mad because of the high degree of heat. Then as the universe cooled, the radiation disappeared slowly, and at the same time, the protons and the antiprotons came together and annihilated. They disappear. When a particle and an antiparticle collide, they just disappear. The electrons and the positrons disappear. So you might think, well, there was nothing left over at the end. In fact, it seems that in the very early universe, there was about one extra proton for about every hundred million protons and antiprotons. And so when they collided and annihilated, there was a tiny, tiny fraction left over. That tiny fraction is us. So we actually owe the existence of matter to this very slight asymmetry, this very slight lack of balance in the very early universe. And otherwise, there would be nothing but just light and radio waves everywhere. This is exactly right. We owe the presence of matter to a slight asymmetry. That's the right word, a slight asymmetry between particles and antiparticles in the early universe so that what was left over had a little more particles than antiparticles. Now, what happened after that of course, is these particles and antiparticles were subject to gravity forces. And the gravity started pulling them together and causing them to clump. The clumps are called galaxies. And the galaxies clumped and formed stars. And some of the material clumped together because of gravity and formed planets. And that's how we got here. It turns out that this kind of matter is only part of the story, as Seth discovered when he spoke with MIT physicist Peter Fisher. And he agreed that it is a quirk of the early universe that just enough matter was left to make us. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the mystery is why there was a little bit extra of matter rather than antimatter. Right, and we don't, we don't seem to know that, but there are a whole slew of things we don't seem to know. I mean, yeah. all, all this stuff that we call matter, from coffee cups to atoms, the stuff we can make pictures of with our telescopes or examine with our microscopes, this is only about 5% of the stuff in the universe. Uh, some of the rest is called dark matter. What the, what the mm -hmm. heck is that? Well, the best guess right now is that dark matter is some kind of particle that is so heavy that we haven't observed it yet in accelerators. The Large Hadron Collider may very well be able to actually produce these particles. The other reason we didn't see it just in everyday light is that it's very, very dilute. 
it's spread all over the galaxy. So if you add up the total mass of the galaxy, it's about 90% dark matter, but it's spread all over the galaxy, including the empty space. So if you sit in your room, the room you're sitting in, in one quart of air, there are probably a few dozen dark matter particles. But in the same quart of air, there are 10 with 25 zeros air molecules. Wait, so it, it is very dilute, and yet if you add up all the matter in the galaxy, because most of the galaxy doesn't have air, it's space, yeah. space, empty space, it, it's actually significant, right? I mean, this is a fair fraction. Yeah, it's, it's dominant. The gravitational field of the dark matter determines the structure of the galaxy. The majority component of the universe, as far as we know, dark energy. Tell me a little bit about dark energy. Well, nobody has the first clue what it is, in my opinion. There are lots of theoretical ideas, but it's really something that doesn't fit into our framework of particle interaction. And this just has to do with the fact that as you increase the density of dark energy, you decrease the pressure that it exerts. So it drives the expansion of the universe at an ever-increasing rate. It's kind of like a negative gravity? Yeah, that's a way of looking at it. See, the interactions of particles, electrons, protons, and neutrinos, are very well described by a general class of theory called quantum field theory. Gravitation is not described by quantum field theory. People just don't know how to do it. So the gravitation really doesn't fit with the other forms of interaction. And dark energy is really related to the way gravity works, whereas dark matter is really related to the way particles work. Is it fair to say that dark energy is maybe the most intriguing puzzle facing cosmologists or physicists today? Yeah, well, I mean, it's certainly the most intriguing. It's experimentally very, very, very hard to get at because to study dark energy, you need telescopes that can look across the universe. And those telescopes are very big and they're very expensive and they're very hard to build and it's really an intractable problem. And, you know, it could be something that we just live with not knowing for a very long time. That, that would be depressing, especially given the fact that, you know, back in the 1600s, when Isaac Newton wrote up his work, you know, a lot of people thought, well, that's it. That's kind of the last word on physics. We now understand everything. It's all kind of mechanical in some sense. And, and now 400 years later, we're saying, well, we don't even know what, you know, three quarters of the universe is made of. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is why you do science. <laughs> you know, it's not all about discovering new particles and learning new things and winning Nobel Prizes. A lot of it is discovering what you really don't know. And if you chart the course of science back from Einstein and the early workers in quantum mechanics, Bohr and Dirac and these guys, you know, there was this hundred years of just incredible experimental work and incredible theoretical work and this fantastic understanding of particle interactions and the discovery of galaxies and clusters of galaxies and this cataloging of the universe. And the bottom line in 1998 is you discover you don't understand what 96% of the stuff is. I'm speaking with Peter Fisher, a physicist at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Peter, you mentioned that here in this room where I'm sitting, you know, there's a little bit of dark matter. Uh, is there also a little bit of dark energy? I assume I'm not being deprived. There's a smidge, yes. Okay. And it doesn't seem to be making me any lighter. I don't see any negative gravity operating on me. There's a device that might be able to detect dark matter or dark energy. It's called the alpha magnetic spectrometer. 
What's that going to do? Well, I'm, I'm one of the founding members of the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer. I actually started that experiment with five guys in 1994. The Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer will not be able to say anything about dark energy. Dark energy is really a gravity problem and something that you study using astronomical techniques, meaning looking through telescopes. So AMS is a particle detector in space, and it will be able to make very sensitive measurements of charged particles. And it might be able to identify some remnant of the annihilation of dark matter particles. And I say might. That's a very, very tricky thing to do. The other thing AMS was designed to do was to look for antimatter in cosmic rays. Because one of the ideas was that there might still be big pockets of antimatter around. And so galaxies spew out charged particles, and if there were anti-galaxies around, they would spew out antimatter. So AMS will be able to see matter and antimatter and, and distinguish between the two and might be able to say something about the antimatter content of the universe. Would that be what's called the anti-universe? Because you see that term bandied about in connection with these experiments. Well, I, I'd be reluctant to say anti-universe. I mean, there is a picture that the universe is not just all matter, but that there are blobs or regions of matter and antimatter. This is not a common view. I think if you ask 10 cosmologists how viable this is, all of them would say it's probably not the way it is. But it's a measurement worth making. Okay, because my understanding of anti-universe, which is probably um, anti-correct, would be that there's some universe that's connected with ours where if you went into it, you would find galaxies, stars, planets, even, you know, people, aliens, whatever, all made out of antiparticles, that this is not a, a parallel universe to ours. It's just some other region of our own universe. Yeah, I think that's kind of the idea. How viable this is, I'm not expert enough to say, but my colleagues tell me that it's not very likely. But Sean Carroll or Lenny Susskind would be able to comment on this much better than I would. Well, Peter Fisher, I want to thank you so much for talking with me. Well, thank you. Peter Fisher is a physicist at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in Cambridge, Mass. Well, I see a lot of dark matter right here in this coffee. You could say it's dark energy, too, actually. You know, Leonard, we've talked about time, we've talked about matter, but according to a popular book, in fact, the bestseller of all time, the universe began when someone said, let there be light. Is uh, that essential? I mean, could there have been a universe without light? Yeah, sure there could be a universe without light. In fact, in many of our speculations about a very, very big universe, the idea is that there are many, many different regions of space with different properties. Some of them don't have light, and some of them couldn't even have light because there's no such thing as a photon in them. But our universe does have light, and that light is awfully darn important to us, not only to be able to see, but the light from the sun keeps us warm. The photons, photons are of course the little particles that make up light, they're also important in another way. They kind of jump back and forth between electrons and the proton and the nucleus of an atom, and they're what hold the atom together. Without light, there would be no atoms, there would be, uh, certainly be no sun, we'd be very, very cold, but don't worry about it because we wouldn't be here to feel the cold. But what was actually produced in the Big Bang was photons? I mean, I guess I'm asking, what is light? Well, light, of course, uh, there's several different ways to think about light. The 
old classical way to think about light was electromagnetic waves, just a wave-like motion going through space. With Einstein and later the invention of quantum mechanics, light took on a particle aspect, and those particles are called photons. So you can just think of light as particles which move with the speed of light. When you create artificial light, or humans created their own artificial light, it was produced originally in the Big Bang and then we created our own. Are we creating new photons? Yes, yes, photons are produced. New photons are produced that weren't there before whenever a charged particle bangs into something else. An example would be uh, x-rays. When Rankin, the physicist Rankin, around 1895 or whatever, discovered x-rays, what he was doing was bombarding electrons into a surface, and when those electrons bombarded into the surface, they were suddenly stopped. But in stopping the electron, absolutely new photons were produced that hadn't been there before. Light bulbs produce new photons. More Coffeehouse chat about the meaning of it all, and we'll even shed light on the subject of artificial illumination. It's one bright idea after another on Big Picture Science. Look at those three over at that table there, drinking coffees and talking and talking. Okay, black coffee's fine and normal, the girl looks normal, and so does the older guy she's talking to. But the guy with the crazy three-pump macchiato order and all those sprinkles? Hey, want some coffee with your sprinkles, buddy? Jeez, nearly cleaned me out. And what's with the stuffed pocket protector? Somewhere in this city there's a pen shortage. Hey, Tommy, here's your triple latte with half foam. They're still talking, always talking. What could be so interesting? Probably nothing. It's never nothing, is it? It's always something. Why is it always something? Hey, Tina, here's your soy espresso. Hold the soy. It's always something in this crazy universe, not nothing. I wonder why that is. Luckily, one thing makes sense, and that's becoming a Team SETI member. When I joined online at SETI.org, I helped scientists who were doing something, studying the nature of life on this planet and the possibility of it elsewhere. Then, by sending an email to the radio show staff at bigpicturescience at SETI.org, I received this picture of the handsomest faces ever to work in radio. Yes, sir, SETI.org and bigpicturescience at SETI.org. Now that's something. Hey, Lance, here's your all-foam cappuccino, no cup. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, the Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less. So you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Back to our conversation about why we're here in a cafe where such conversations should take place. Seth and I have been talking with theoretical physicist Leonard Susskind, and we'll hear more from him later in the show. But to continue our conversation about light, we haven't made artificial time, we haven't made artificial dark energy, but the one thing we have made is artificial light. I spoke with author Jane Brocks about how artificial light has lit our homes, illuminated our highways, and uh, inadvertently lit up our skies. Jane, artificial light is kind of pervasive now. The, the world is aglow with light, and I'm not sure that many people recognize that. You start your book off by describing how glowy we are. 
Correct. And what astonishes me is how many people have said to me, I just never even think about light. We take it for granted. It's more natural to us than the dark, I think. Well, the fact that we take it for granted, that's, that's something new. That's something of the last, you know, 150, 200 years. Because you describe what it was like to be living, you know, even 30, 40,000 years ago. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that, what, what you would do once the sun went down. Well, once the sun went down, really from 30 or 40,000 years ago, right through to the end of the 18th century, light essentially did not change. People had to work for their light. It was basically a container, if not stone at the very early ages. Later, it would be tin or some kind of ceramic, perhaps. But there was just a vegetable oil or an animal fat in there and a wick. You're, you're talking about lamps. I mean, Lamps. It, lamps. It, and people had to get their own oil, and they had to make their own wicks. <laughs> they had to make their own containers for many, many centuries. Well, I've seen, in fact, I even have a Roman lamp, which, uh-huh. you know, just this little clay thing. Right. And when you think the Romans, that wasn't very long ago, really, 2,000 years. This was all that technology had done for 150,000 years of Homo sapiens? That's right. And, I mean, one of the amazing things about Imperial Rome is there were no street lamps, so that at night, Rome closed up as did Renaissance Florence. Renaissance Florence had no street lamps either. So what we take for granted as our open, inviting nightlife is really something that's only existed since the 19th century. Well, I want to get into that, but maybe before we do, you could describe what it was like then at night in a uh, in a medieval town. I mean, uh, there were no street lamps. Did I mean, were the streets empty? And if so, why? Well, there were also no police forces. So in order to keep order in the cities, authorities would require people stay indoors after the curfew bell sounded. And people were often locked into their homes. The perimeter gates of fortified cities were locked. At times, authorities placed chains or logs across the road to inhibit people from moving about at night. There was a night watch, and the night watch carried their lamps or torches with them. There was a watch on the perimeters, and very few people were permitted abroad, midwives, doctors, the very wealthy. The very wealthy always traveled with an entourage of protectors because, in fact, there were also thieves abroad, and um, they feared for their lives once they left their homes. I think you you write that, uh, indeed, if the only women on the streets at night were indeed midwives and anybody else was assumed to be a prostitute. Correct. But that kind of changed in the 1700s, right? To begin with, uh, you describe how they, they developed better ways of fueling their lamps, beginning with whale oil. With the advent of whale oil, which was a higher quality oil, than, until then, many oils were local. So, for instance, if you lived in the Mediterranean, you might use olive oil. If you lived in the Shetland Islands, you would kill storm petrels, which are a very oily seabird, stick them in a base of clay and stick a wick down their throat and use that as a light. So light was always local. Whale oil was the first really commercial oil. So what would the light have been like using these kinds of lamps, whether it was, you know, whale oil or or a lit-up bird? Well, a lit-up bird, they're very eerie. They're stiff because the people would dry them, and they place them in just a rough base of clay. The bird is erect. The mouth is open. There's a wick down the throat of the bird, and there's just a light coming out of the beak of the bird. 
And the whale oil lamps, because whale oil was very thick, the oil was not easy to climb up a wick. It was very thick. The lamps could smoke. The lamps could be very dim at times, and the light was constantly shifting and changing. Now, all of this changed beginning uh, around 1800 with the Mm -hmm. introduction of gas lighting. I mean, of course, it was also the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, and you had factories springing up where, you know, it really would help if you could keep them going after the sun went down. And these lamps, I take it, just weren't up to the job. No, can you imagine a factory lit by whale oil lamps? Each lamp would have to be tended. Each lamp gave off its smoke. Each lamp was actually potentially a a huge fire hazard. A A lot of factories kept their own firefighting equipment on hand just in case um, one of those whale oil lamps got out of control. So it was not only um, smoky and dim, it was also a very dangerous enterprise. Who brought in gas lighting? Because that reigned supreme for half a century. Correct. Gas lighting began in England at the very beginning of the 19th century. William Murdoch first developed a gas lighting system uh, for a factory in England. And then about 10 or 12 years later, it ended up they began to light the streets of London. And actually, gas lighting in in England proceeded very quickly because England's economy was based on coal, whereas the rest of Europe and America, the economy was still based on wood, and gas light moved much more slowly. The gas used in gas lighting systems was derived from coal. So gas lighting indeed was the light that, in fact, ushered in the Industrial Revolution. And if we move forward, of course, to the obvious uh, development in the 1880s in Menlo Park, New Jersey, that was a revolution that was truly unprecedented. Maybe you could describe what was happening there, the invention of the light bulb. Right. Well, Edison actually came in on the end of a a centuries-long quest for an incandescent light. Um, There were many people experimenting with an incandescent bulb in Europe and America and Russia. But Edison, in fact, began his experiments in the 1870s and developed the first workable light bulb in the fall of 1879. But what was most important about Edison's system was the entire system itself. He not only developed a workable filament bulb, but he developed a way to deliver electricity to that bulb. He developed the switches and the dynamos that ran the whole whole system. Yeah, I think many people do indeed have the the wrong impression that once you invent the light bulb, suddenly there's electric light everywhere. (laughs) It just didn't work that way. In fact, people who live in New York may have gone to uh, Pearl Street. There's a little plaque on a storefront in Pearl Street, which is right near Ground Zero, actually. And it Mm -hmm. commemorates the first generating plant that Edison set up to be able to sell his light bulbs, I suppose. Right. The Pearl Street station was the first. Edison always imagined this as an urban endeavor, and he always had his sights set on New York. So his first system was based on Pearl Street, and it actually lit up that whole area. The New York Times building was lit up then as well, and and all the reporters just marveled at the quality of the light once they were able to work by Edison's electric light. Uh, a lot of people have this impression, I suppose, that Edison was sitting around in the lab, you know, sort of one evening, and he invents the light bulb like that. Uh, in fact, I think it was mostly his, his co-workers who were doing the work, and it, it took them a long time, right? I mean, this was a big project. 
It was an enormous project, and it, there was a lot of trial and error involved. To look at the notebooks of some of the workforce, they just kept experimenting with different kinds of filaments, different kinds of bulbs, different dynamos. Everything was being experimented with at the same time. It was, in fact, an invention factory at Menlo Park, and it was the ceaseless effort of many workers that actually ended up developing the light bulb. I'm speaking with Jane Brox, the author of Brilliant, The Evolution of Artificial Light. If we jump forward 20 years, Jane, you know, 20 years after Edison's invention of the incandescent lamp, what parts of the country, this country, would have been illuminated? Who would have had electric light in their homes? Not, not factories, but in their homes. Well, not many people, actually. <laughs> to begin with, it was only the wealthy really could afford to have their homes wired for electricity. And also, since it was an interconnected system, the light company would have to develop the street system to bring light to your house. So you had to live in certain neighborhoods in order to take advantage of electric light. It was only, I would say, in the 1910s, 1920s that the light began to spread into middle, upper middle class neighborhoods, then middle class neighborhoods. And the rural and the poor didn't get light until the 30s and 40s. You mentioned the Tennessee Valley Authority and the importance of that in bringing light to areas of the country that simply hadn't seen the light. Right. I mean, you have to remember that the electric light companies were private corporations, so they really had no incentive to string their lines out into the countryside um, where they would serve maybe one, two, or three people per mile. So FDR's initiatives basically forced the hand of electric companies, and actually it induced farmers and rural people to form their own cooperatives to get themselves light out to their homes and, and farms. One of the things that clearly interests you about artificial lighting is, of course, the effect on society. I mean, there's this, this unconscious effect that we just assume we can do things at night, but it had all sorts of sociological uh, effects. For example, they didn't have to sleep as much. I mean, they, they, there was something they could read a book at night or something right. like that. Maybe you could describe how this has changed our habits and, and maybe even our values. Right. I think of you know the opening up of night in one way as uh, new hours for the human spirit. For many people who worked all day, to have light at night meant they actually had leisure time in which they could occupy themselves with things other than work. For the middle class people, it meant might have meant going out at night. For some people, it meant reading at night or just to be able to sit around and talk among themselves in the evening under a brighter light. It made a huge difference. But it also, you know, the better the light, the longer people were induced to work. I mean, Edison's electric light actually ushered in the three-shift day, so people could work 24 hours a day in eight-hour shifts rather than uh, one or two shifts. Well, it sounds like there isn't just a, a bright side, if you will, right. to, to artificial light. You know, there's been life on this planet for probably four billion years. And mm -hmm. all that time, of course, you know, 50 percent of your existence was spent in the dark. Right. So, you know, critters sleep and, you know, you don't do too much when it's dark because there was nothing you could do. And now suddenly, in the last 150 years... Homo sapiens invents artificial light, and now nighttime is as good as daytime, maybe better because we have nightlife. Nobody talks about daylife, as far right. as I can tell. <laughs> so, so, I mean, you know, what, what's the darker side of illumination, if you will? Well, I think the darker side is that our evenings also are 
keyed up or may even be more keyed up than during our days. There's a different rhythm to our nights than there were traditionally to our nights 400, 500, 600 years ago. We've become so accustomed to bright light that I think we keep wanting brighter and brighter light. And of course, that has led to light pollution, which affects our night sky, affects our ability to see the stars and planets, but also affects our sleep cycles and the sleep cycles and patterns of wildlife as well. Could you uh, elaborate a bit on that? Because uh, I certainly know about the effects on astronomy. I uh, very seldom run into anybody who's seen the Milky Way anymore. I know. I think over 60% of Americans can't see the Milky Way from their house anymore. So really, light pollution is pervasive in terms of what it does to the night sky, but it also disrupts our circadian rhythm so that when you turn a light on at night, it resets the human rhythms, and so your impetus to sleep is delayed. Consequently, um, you have a lot more trouble settling down to sleep, a lot more trouble having a full night's sleep. And for wildlife, it affects it affects wildlife across the board. It affects migrating birds who depend on celestial light for navigation. Oftentimes, migrating birds will come to their death by flying into uh, skyscrapers. It affects nocturnal animals who depend on the darkness both to hunt and to hide. It affects bats who gather around street lamps to get their prey. It can actually change the environmental equilibrium of a certain species. Finally then, Jane, it sounds to me like there might be some reason to turn the lights off a bit more often. I think so. I mean, I didn't realize the extent of light pollution when I began the book, but by the time I finished it, I found myself becoming an advocate for less light, less light on the streets and in our homes. So and in hopes of sort of creating a balance once again. Let there be less light. Jane Brox, thank you so much for talking with me. Well, thank you, Seth. Jane Brox is the author of Brilliant, The Evolution of Artificial Light. Well, we've heard about artificial light, but even all the light bulbs in the world can't stop the universe from ultimately going dark. Isn't that true? Well, that's absolutely right. As time goes on, the universe expands, it cools, The photons which were there will get stretched almost out of existence. And also stars will run out of fuel. As stars run out of fuel, they will become cold. And eventually, that's right, there will be no sources of light, and light will just disappear from the universe. Well, before the universe goes dark, um, and while there is still something here in this universe, we can ask you the big sitting around a cafe question, which is even bigger than the discussions of time or matter or light, which is, why is there something rather than nothing in the universe. You just laughed a bit to yourself. Yes, I did just laugh a bit. (laughs) That is exactly the kind of question which, you know, you really want to be able to ask. It's really what physicists want to know. But on the other hand, it's a kind of question that we not only don't know the answer to, but we can't imagine an answer to. What would the world be like if there was nothing? Well, how can I answer that? If If there was nothing, I wouldn't be here. There are some things which are just unimaginable, and I mean you can't imagine answers to those questions, but still, it sounds like an awfully good question. Why is there something rather than nothing? Well, the answer is it beats me. I have to say, I have a great deal of trouble just getting my head around that question. Leonard Susskind, we want to thank you so much for joining us in this uh, cafe conversation about the meaning of it all. <laughs> well, thank you, Seth and Molly. I enjoyed it enormously. 
Leonard Susskind is professor of theoretical physics at Stanford University. You know, Seth, Leonard raised that point that there are some questions that science has trouble even asking. And I wonder if the question of whether or not there's life elsewhere in the universe is one of those questions, because right now we don't have any answers. Well, we don't have any answers, but of course the question is pretty straightforward. I mean, the Greeks asked the question, but what they couldn't do and that what we can do today is we can think of a way of maybe answering the question. So we have the tools to answer the question someday of whether or not there's life in the universe, but we might not be able to answer the question of why there's something rather than nothing? Yeah, that's a really tough one, why there's something rather than nothing. And Leonard balked at that, and most people I know would balk at it. In fact, I tend to agree with him. That's such a difficult question just to get your mind around, the idea that there could be some sort of alternative existence where there's no existence. How could one possibly conceive of that? I mean, people have thought about it, and I've actually read some articles by some other physicists in which they suggest that, in fact, the being something rather than nothing is inevitable given the nature of quantum mechanics and things like that. So maybe that's the way it has to be. And that's not just the caffeine talking? Uh, who knows? Probably it is. And that's it for our show. It's been stimulating in conversation and caffeine today. So now we have some insight into why we're all here, or at least what we all are. Thanks to the matter that makes up Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Jay Weiler for Without It, We Wouldn't Have Their Help with the program. And to the SETI Institute and the NASA Astrobiology Institute for their support. Uh, another coffee, Molly? Uh, better make it a decaf. Uh, can we get a double decaffeinated three-pump no-foam macchiato uh, with extra sprinkles? Yes, sir. They're under the lemon wedge. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news in technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.